you dox, you get suspended. End of story. Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to explain the madness that is going on with Twitter. That was Elon Musk trying to justify why he's banned journalists from Twitter. It's crazy. So what does this mean for free speech on the platform in a battle with one of the world's richest men? Plus a winter storm, heavy snow and ice that is expected to bombard millions today. We are live in the Severe Weather Center with your update. Also, the stock market closing at its worst day in months. Look at the sell-off yesterday. We're going to talk about what is spooking investors. But first, we're going to begin with the developing nor'easter. Just as many Americans are planning to travel for the holidays, the storm expected to bring ice and snow from Pennsylvania all the way through New England. Now, some areas are already getting slammed this morning, like in North Dakota, where there's widespread outages from frozen power lines. And parts of Minnesota getting almost two and a half feet of snow. Poppy, check on your relatives there. Oh, mom already called. All right, good. Glad. I hope everything's okay. We're going to get straight to meteorologist Chad Myers now in the CNN Severe Weather Center. What can we expect? Good morning to you. What can we expect heading, expect with a T, heading into the weekend, Chad? Good morning, Don. It, this has been a doozy. Snowing right now upstate all the way through interior New England, and that snow is not going to stop. Winter storm warnings in effect. This is great news for ski areas, but not so great news for skiers that can't get there. This is going to be a tough storm today. Around noon, we're still going to see snow. Later on this afternoon, still seeing snow. And by tomorrow, yeah. That's the broken record. It is still snowing in parts of New England, and there is going to be a lot of accumulation. We're talking two to three feet of snow in these higher elevations. Now the big cities all get rain, and at times today, a lot of rain. And then behind this, it is going to get cold. And for the Friends of Poppy Facebook page, Minnesota, next Thursday, Minneapolis, you don't get above zero for a high temperature, Don. It's, Chad, it's Minnesota. Don't you know? (laughs) Get it right, hey, guys. Get it right, I was born guys. in Buffalo. I got the R. Hey, get in the car. <laughs> Thank you, Chad Poppy. You bet. All right, really turning the page here to very serious news. Overnight, missile attacks reported across Ukraine. Police warning residents to shelter in place. I mean, think about hearing that as you're trying to go about your day. This is new video showing the moment civilians sheltered inside a Kyiv metro station were told critical infrastructures were hit. Two people have been killed, both children. Meanwhile, on the border of Ukraine and Belarus, CNN joined Ukrainian soldiers as they actively work on solidifying their trenches in the event of a potential Russian ground invasion. Earlier this month, Belarus announced that it is moving troops and military equipment, citing, quote, counterterrorism threats. Ukraine's defense minister expressed his concern in a new interview with our very own Will Ripley. We have to be concerned because we have a not friendly neighbor, but we have 2,500 kilometers not friendly borders, Belarus. Russia and temporarily occupied territories. We have to be ready here. That's right. This comes as the head of Ukraine's military tells The Economist Russians are regrouping. Russian forces are regrouping for a new offensive, saying, quote, the Russians are preparing some 200,000 fresh troops. I have no doubt that they will have another go at Kiev. Our Will Ripley will join us next hour live from Kiev. All right. Also overnight, Twitter has abruptly suspended the accounts of half a dozen prominent journalists claiming they violated Twitter's rules without really providing many details. 
Elon Musk, who, as you know, bought the platform for $44 billion, accused reporters of posting basically assassination coordinates for him and his family, even though there is no evidence that any of them did that. Your dog should get suspended. End of story. Um, so, and, 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 Elon, and, 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 evasion, ban evasion, or like, or, or trying to be clever about it. Like, oh, I posted a link to the real-time information. It's obviously, uh, that is obviously simply trying to evade the, the, the meaning. That is, there's no different from, than, paste, than actually showing real-time information. The reporters, including CNN's Donio Sullivan and others from The New York Times, Washington Post and other outlets, said the suspensions happened without any warning or real explanation afterward. They were suspended one day after Twitter changed its policy on sharing live location information, mainly in part to justify suspending an account that tracked flight data and shared the location of Elon's private jet, despite how he once pledged to keep that account online. Our colleague Donnie O'Sullivan did not share Elon Musk's location, and others say they didn't either. Musk once said that his purchase of Twitter would actually expand free speech on the platform, and he wrote earlier this year, quote, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. Here's Musk in his own words. Well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech uh, where all, so, uh, yeah, um, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Is someone you don't like allowed to say something you don't like? And if that is the case, then we have free speech. Joining us now to discuss is CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy and CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher, who is also a media reporter at Axios. Oliver? What happened to that Elon that we just heard? Yeah. Right? Just a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, I think this has really exposed his lack of commitment to free speech. I don't know how you can claim to support free speech and then ban journalists from the New York Times, CNN, the Washington Post, and others yesterday. Um, and I also think this does raise a big question about what the future of free speech looks like on Twitter. Um, are news organizations going to stay on Twitter? News organizations have been the lifeblood of Twitter for some time. I mean, that's what Twitter is. People go there for real-time information, and they look for credible information from journalists at major news organizations. I think it's going to be interesting to see whether news orgs stand for this. I think CNN, in its statement, even pointed out that it was going to evaluate um, its future mm -hmm. with the platform depending on how Twitter responds. And so far, Twitter has responded, or Elon Musk has responded, because it's really him at this point, by smearing the journalists who he banned, saying that they posted effective assassination coordinates on him. That is, you know, not true. And it's, uh, I don't think, a valid answer to, to what he's done here. Is it just a, a, probably a combination? Lack of a plan. I think it's poor planning. There is no plan. And thin skin is yeah. basically what it is. And just making you know what up as he goes. Yeah, and I think to Oliver's point, journalists are willing to listen to rules if they really are consistent. The challenge here is there is no consistency. Now, he said that these journalists were banned because they doxed him. This isn't what doxing is. Doxing is Can posting... Can explain doxing? Yeah. Yes, doxing is posting someone's personally identifiable information, such as... Like an address, right? Their address, their email phone address, number. their phone number, with malintent, basically, to ensure that person gets harassed. What these journalists were doing is they were posting links to an account that was actually moved to a different social media site because Elon Musk banned it from Twitter. 
that had publicly available information about Elon Musk's jet location, and they were aggregating it and posting it. And I should remind the audience, this is not some unique thing to Elon Musk. In the past, people have done this with celebrities all the time, tracking Taylor Swift's jet, Kim Kardashian's jet. Oliver and I were talking about the fact that Elon Musk has tried to ban all of those accounts. But to equate that with doxing does not seem consistent at all with the principles that he said. And it makes it hard for us as journalists to figure out how we even abide by the new Elon Musk rules when they're not so consistent. I think this is going to have a major chilling effect, actually, on Twitter, because now there, there, there are no rules. It's clear there are no rules. If you irritate Elon Musk, you can get banned from the platform. But, and Oliver, we're talking about it. Yeah, we're, no. ta we're talking about it. Is this what he wants? That we're talking about mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter, and then all of a sudden, donating everybody's going to be reinstated, and it's a whole Trump thing where you own the news cycle for the next 24 hours, and then you do something else that is hyperbolic and outrageous, and then you own the news cycle. Why are we doing it? I think, it, well, it's important. To, it's, it's one of these cases where it's difficult, right? Yeah. You don't want to give someone attention if they're just looking for attention. But I think it's also important to talk about what's happening on this platform because it is such a crucial information platform. This is how a lot of the world communicates. I mean, world can, leaders are on this platform. Can we platform, talk about right? that? Like, let's get outside of the United States for a world for a moment, this is a show that airs around the world, and there are many other countries, not democracies like the United States, that are so reliant on Twitter mm -hmm. for information and for having their voices heard outside of the country. How does something like this potentially affect that in a much more grave situation. Yeah, absolutely. A couple ways. One, Twitter's user base is mostly international, and other world leaders look to leaders in America, whether they're politicians or business leaders, to implement tactics that go against the free press to hold their power. That's where this is going to have the most chilling effect. Other world leaders are going to look at social media platforms in their countries and say, well, you know, Elon Musk is targeting journalists, creating ad hoc policies. We can do the same thing. But I think where it has the most chilling effect is that Twitter journalists in the United States are also leveraged around the world. People around the world rely on us to tell them what's happening here because it impacts their democracies and impacts their countries. And if journalists here have a chilling effect, don't feel comfortable posting on Twitter, it impacts not just our democracy and the people here, but the people around the world. Well, you're not kicked off yet. I am not kicked off. Is it, are, not you, are you um, nervous? Does it make you think twice about what you post in a way you wouldn't have thought yesterday this time? I'm not changing my behavior whatsoever. I'm reporting the truth. And if that yeah. gets me banned, then that gets me banned. Yeah. But I do think that I'm going to have to invest a lot more in Instagram and LinkedIn and other platforms just in case. What does this mean, though, for Caitlin's dad or my mom or Poppy's mom? Like, what is it for the average? Or not on Twitter about. or mine well, aren't. My, my mom's on Twitter okay. so much. She like recipes. She wants to see what people are saying about the show. You know, make little comments about what does this mean for them? You know, earlier this year, Spotify CEO Daniel X said something yes. that really stuck with me. I asked him, uh, or an investor asked him on his investor day, what does Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter mean for the future of free speech? And X said it sets a new precedent for how all global leaders, in terms of tech leaders or anyone who runs the media, think about how they do content moderation. Because now that Elon is rolling this back, every other platform owner feels like they can roll their content moderation policies back. I also think looking at it through the bigger picture of everything he said he was going to do versus what he's actually done, it's been really inconsistent since he bought the platform. So even if you're just judging him by his own standards, he's not meeting those standards. Right. I think it just shows that he doesn't know what he wants to do with this platform. And he's just making it up as he goes along. And the real guiding principle doesn't seem to be toward free speech. It seems to be toward whatever's best for Elon Musk. And so even this rule that he says that journalists, you know, 
uh, violated. He just made this rule up out of thin air. The day before. The, the day before. And it wasn't announced. It's not like old Twitter users got an email saying the rules have been updated. You know, you can no longer do this. Journalists noticed that this page had been quietly updated with this rule change. And so, you know, I, there, there's a number of things he's done that has really shown that he is not committed toward what he says in public. What he does what he's doing is totally is different. He knows if he bans journalists, we're going to talk about it. He needs attention because he needs eyes on Twitter. He is accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish. That's all this mm. is. That's it. Unless the advertisers pull. They're not. I'm waiting to see where that threshold hits, though, because for now, user engagement is going up. Third party analysis will show that. But when does it start to go down? When do users start to get fed up with this? And when do companies like Apple or Amazon that advertise on Twitter say, hey, we do not want to be associated with a platform that censors the press? And news companies companies are some of the biggest advertisers on Twitter. How are they supposed to continue to promote their stories and spend money on this platform when the leader of it is banning their journalists? Yeah. All right. Oliver, Sarah, thank you both for joining us on this. We'll be talking about it all morning. We're also going to talk to Donny O'Sullivan himself. Obviously, he is one of the reporters who is banned. We'll talk about what he has to say about Musk banning him. I want to hear what Donny has to say. Meantime, a new defense bill passed by Congress and awaiting President Biden's signature calls for an end to the military's COVID vaccine mandate. On this vote, the yeas are 83, the nays are 11. The 60-vote threshold having been achieved, the motion to concur in the James... The measure also includes $800 million in aid to Ukraine, an increase in basic pay for service members, and up to $10 billion for a defense moderation, a modernization, I should say, program for Taiwan to deter aggression by China. The bill does not reinstate service members who were discharged for refusing to get vaccinated. Some military officials fear ending the mandate could adversely affect troop readiness. Well, CNN has learned two senior police officials are coming under intense scrutiny in connection with the botched response to the shooting. Botched, to say the least, the lack of response to the shooting at the school in Uvalde, Texas, that ended with 19 children murdered, as well as two teachers. These revelations coming to light as state officials attempt to wrap up their investigation. Our Shimon Porcupine joins us live in the Texas Capitol for CNN this morning. Good morning to you, Shimon. What can you tell us? Yeah, so those two officials, uh, of course, uh, much of our attention in the last several months, our reporting has been focused on them, uh, was the school police chief, Pete Arredondo, uh, and the other person who has come under intense scrutiny is Mariano Pargas. He was also just recently the subject of our own investigation into his actions that day. The fact that he didn't take command, the fact that he knew that there was a 911 call, but yet still didn't lead, didn't use a team of law enforcement officials to break through that door and save some of those kids who are inside that room. All of this is happening as we've now learned, and basically we caught up with the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is leading this investigation. Their investigation is wrapping up. We spoke to the leader of that agency yesterday. Take a listen. And one thing is, is, is important it is, 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 I know it's, is people have talked about, well, what investigation? It can't be a criminal investigation. The subject's dead. Well, she's looking at criminal culpability for law enforcement officers. And why should we you know, not be judicious and as thorough investigating law enforcement officers as we are subjects that aren't in command? And you think you've done that? Your, your rangers, your investigators, you think have, have been doing that and, and have done that? Absolutely. And we'll continue to do so. 
And so she's going to, the district attorney will be receiving your information within days or so. And, but like for all intents and purposes, we're, we're, you, besides some follow-ups that may come down the line, you believe it's basically yes. the investigation is complete. That's correct. That's correct. So now it will be in her. Yeah. And it, but if she finds gaps or things, additional things that need to be, we'll continue to do those particular things. And so then now the district attorney there in Uvalde, uh, Christina Busby Mitchell, will decide whether or not this case uh, goes before a grand jury and whether or not any of those officers that the Texas Rangers and the Texas Department of Public Safety have been investigating, whether or not they're going to face charges. Just quickly, one note on the internal investigation that's been going on by the inspector general at the Texas Department of Public Safety. Seven officers have been under investigation. That is still ongoing. The, The head of the agency wouldn't talk to us about that, but he said that investigation is still ongoing. So, of course, as I always say, after every story here, there is still a lot more to come. We are still digging in on a lot of our own stories and our own investigation. So the next several months certainly are going to be important here. We know you will stay on it as you always have uh, pressing for answers. Shimon, thank you. All right, recession fears rocking the markets. Is the Fed going too far with its rate hikes? And new reporting, black voter turnout down in 2022 and Democrats are already panicking. just nine days away from Christmas, so there's not really a lot of holiday spirit on Wall Street this morning. The stock market taking another tumble on Thursday as investors are fretting over the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes as they are cooling the economy into a recession. That's their concern. On Wednesday, the Fed raised the rates by, quote, just half a point, the seventh rate hike this year. The Fed chair indicating more rate hikes are coming and further stoking those recession fears, a much bigger drop in retail sales for November than was expected. Joining us now is CNN's chief business correspondent and anchor of Early Start, Christine Romans, and CNN's business correspondent, Rahel Solomon. Not really the end of the year rally people were hoping for. No, Santa Claus rally. Sometimes you get that. But this year, for perspective for stock investors, that's really all of us, right, in a 401k? You're probably looking at 18% loss in the S&P 500 this year, and that really hurts. That's the biggest loss since 2008 when the stock market lost 38%. But perspective, it rallied 26% last year. It rallied 16% the year before. It rallied 28% in 2019. So we have had a really big run here. The stock market, the S&P, is up 45% over the past five years. So that's the important perspective about this step back we've seen. And the step back is for a really good reason. The economy is transitioning from this post-pandemic boom into what it's going to look like next. We've got high inflation, still a very strong job market, and consumers that have a lot of money still in their pockets from all of that pandemic spending, an extra trillion and a half dollars in consumer firepower is there. So we're transitioning to something that's, new here. That's what like Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan said he was worried about is it's when that— out. One and a half trillion runs out. Then yeah. what? Susie Arman said, "Said yeah, She's that money it. will eventually run out, and we don't know what's going to happen. How consumers are going to handle it? We do know when those retail sales numbers we saw this week, you're starting to see a change in behavior. People, they were not good for November. They were not good for November. A lot of that was auto sales, um, for two reasons: used car prices are falling. Finally, mm-hmm. that's a good thing, um, and also people can't get the car they want." And they're worried about, if there's a recession next year, do I need to buy an optional auto purchase? Maybe I shouldn't do that. And that's actually a good thing for 
people's you know, personal budgets. Yeah, I think you're absolutely seeing inflation start to shift how people spend. So in addition to auto sales falling, as Christine pointed out, we saw uh, fall, falls in uh, furniture and electronics and sporting goods. So part of this is, you know, if you bought a TV over the last year, maybe you don't need another TV. But part of this is also maybe you're holding off on buying a TV because you're hearing all of these recession warnings. You're seeing the higher interest rates and you're thinking, Maybe I'll just sit this out right now and, you but know, also hold price on. cuts. You saw those yeah. huge price cuts. So all those price cuts for sporting goods and for TVs and for apparel and, and appliances. Well, that means the sales number is less because the price tag was less. These are not adjusted, adjusted for inflation. We need more TVs. Oh, no, we don't. You need more decorative more TVs yeah. to look at us. Have, people to want experiences. They don't want stuff. People want experiences, not stuff. Well, hello. This see is see an that. experience right oh, here exactly. for the TV. But so the concern <laughs> is that also... The economy is not going to grow in 2023, is yeah. what the Fed is saying now, right? Yeah, I mean, the projection, I think, was 0.4, right. 0.5% exactly for 2023, which so is what does that mean? minor growth. Well, what it means is that we're probably going to continue to see consumer spending slow, right? I mean, we already saw it in retail sales. Now we're going to start looking at GDP reports to see if we start to see it slow. I think the main takeaway for people at home who are seeing the stock market have these really volatile moves this year is we're probably going to see more of that into 2023 until Jay Powell okay. and the Fed... Okay finally pauses. We were talking about this debate in the commercial and there is the camp, which is the Fed. And and I'd say a majority right now are saying the pain of more job losses. Right. Powell's predicting about a million job losses in the next year um, is worth it to get inflation down. But 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 all these rates are not as meaningfully bringing inflation down as they wanted. Not yet, right. So the question is, when does this wall of tightening hit? We've just seen the beginning of the tightening, probably. They started raising interest rates in March. That was a little 25 basis point nibble. Then you saw four, then a 50, and then four big 75 in a row. That big wall of tightening is going to hit at some point next Mm -hmm. year. And so that could really start to bring inflation down. But you're right, there's this trade-off that we're trying to figure out. Inflation hurts every family. Everybody gets slammed by inflation. The trade-off here is that if you slow the economy to kill that inflation, you might kill a million jobs. Mm. So now you're balancing a million jobs in exchange for 320 million Americans, 308 million Americans who suffer from inflation, and that's the trade-off they're trying to do. And Elizabeth Warren's one saying it's not worth it. Right. But I think one interesting way to think about what Christine is saying is the Fed views inflation and this inflation problem sort of like a leak in your roof. If you don't treat it now and you're not sure that you have treated it now on the front end, it could potentially become Mm -hmm. a bigger problem to solve. So that's Powell and the Fed's whole, whole point, that we have to tame it now because the risk of not taming inflation means that it lingers higher for longer and hurts everyone. I'm dealing with that right now with a furnace. With your furnace? I just had my furnace <laughs> checked for the winter. I was the like, you have inflation on says, your furnace? What? We can patch it, but you know, it's 20 years old. I have a leaking you know. water heater. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> so, you like, know, I thank you, Rahel, for I love how you bringing just us made back that to reality. <laughs> it is relatable. I can get a new furnace, and I'm good for 15, years. somebody get this years. man a furnace, please? Oh, wait, or, Live, we don't know what's going to happen next year. Live below your means. Yes. Don't yes. add to credit card debt. Do men. not take out a store credit card. You know, you've got to have your burn rate less than your earn rate. And that is Thanks how you to survive. your dad, right? That's my dad always says that. He is, yeah. Before you such a bought the thing, leaky roof analogy, and I was just going to say deep breaths. We've gone through this before, and I think oh, yeah. we're going yes. to be okay. We're in better shape than 2008, Thank 2009. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, both. Christine. Thank you, Rahel. Appreciate it. Uh, Democrats are taking a look in the mirror and acknowledging a new challenge heading into 2024. The midterms revealing a significant drop in black voter turnout. Plus this. A 
swear to God, I hate you. I swear to God, I hate you, bro. You're the worst teacher ever. You get me taken out of here because you're the one to find You've got to see the video and hear the entire story. This is Winston-Salem State University now responding to the arrest of a student in the classroom after apparently arguing with the teacher. What went down? Next. Yes, that really is. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Here's what's coming up for you in the show today. Right now, a northeast snowstorm is on the move. It's expected to impact millions. The areas that are already getting slammed will tell you ahead. Plus, a student at an HBCU arrested in the classroom will tell you what prompted the escalation that you see here. All of it was caught on camera and what the school has just said about it. Also, airlines pulling back the perks. Why are they switching things up and not trying to reward, not trying as hard to reward passengers? Well, this morning, there are concerns among some Democrats about 2024, and this is about the black vote. Here's a snapshot of critical Senate races this year in Arizona. Black voters made up 4% of the electorate in Pennsylvania. The number was 8%, 11% in Nevada and in Georgia, where Democrats hope to keep building black support. It was 28%. And there's new CNN reporting that reveals Democratic operatives are now pretty worried about what dwindling black voter turnout could mean for the party in the next presidential election. It's prompted questions about how candidates can get more black voters to the polls, especially in swing states and tough districts. Let's go to our colleague, CNN senior reporter, Isaac Dover. Help us understand this. I was confused. We were talking about it in the break at what these numbers actually show and why Democratic operatives are pretty worried. Well, look, what you see here, Poppy, is that there is a trend that is concerning a lot of Democratic operatives that black turnout has not been at the high levels that it was certainly in the days of Barack Obama running for president uh, and has continued at that pace and not kept up with where uh, a lot of white turnout is, especially in these elections in 2022, where you saw a lot of white, independent, suburban voters show up but vote for Democrats, those voters that are always being fought of, and that helped deliver a lot of races for Democrats, whereas the black vote in a lot of places really was underperforming where Democrats want it to be. They look ahead to 2024 and they say, if we can't turn that around, if things look a little different, if the candidates look different, that's going to be a problem. But in, in Georgia, though, where it mattered, right, didn't, wasn't there strong black support? It was stronger than in uh, most other places around the country, and that's a really big part of this. And that's why you see a lot of people saying, let's look to Georgia, what Raphael Warnock did there. And specifically, it's Raphael Warnock in that Senate race that it, w- that it mattered. And uh, Stacey Abrams uh, was uh, doing well with black voters, uh, about par with where Warnock did. She did not have the support of independent and swing voters, suburban voters in the same way that Warnock did that helped deliver the runoff uh, to him and get him that seat uh, secured for the next six years. Yeah, it wasn't um, it wasn't the Democratic Party that was getting black voter turnout. It was people, you know, like black votes, black voters matter uh, and other verified. Yeah, yeah and verified. Those are the people that were getting the black vote voters to show up. So the Democratic Party got some work to do in working with Sounds like it. organizations. Yeah. Uh, everyone should read your reporting, Isaac, on CNN.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This morning, administrators at Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina trying to explain why police slapped handcuffs on this student over a dispute with one of her professors. Look. Exactly. 
So the video went viral. It captures the arrest inside a classroom at the historically black university. Diane Gallagher live for CNN this morning in Charlotte, North Carolina. Diane, good morning to you. It shows the arrest. We don't know what happened before, but it's certainly very disturbing. What do we know about this altercation and how did police get involved in this? So, Don, I do want to be clear about that. There's still a lot that we don't know about this video, but you can understand why it went viral. It is very disturbing. I want to make sure people see this video here. You see that young student crying. She's shouting uh, things like to the professor, I hate you. I hate you. You get me taken out in handcuffs because I won't apologize. Because I won't apologize, you start yelling at me. You try to embarrass me about my paper. Uh, Now, look, uh, according to both the school and a student who shot video there, they say that this all started over an assignment. This was the final exam day, according to that student. Uh, That same student tells us at no point were there physical threats and that their classmate and the professor were on different sides of the classroom. They weren't near each other. According to the school, it was actually a different faculty member who called the police. Uh, But look, there is this additional layer here. This is an HBC And look, the chancellor issued a statement saying, in part, in accordance with law enforcement procedures, our officer's first priority is to assess the situation and provide every opportunity for a positive resolution. We understand that the weaponization of police is a prevalent problem in our community. However, that is not what happened in this incident. Again, we're not exactly sure what caused it to escalate to what we see in that video there. This was a real arrest, though, Don. That student is charged with disorderly conduct. Yeah. Let us know when you get more information, but definitely we should dig in to find out what happened. Thank you, Diane. Appreciate it. Also this morning, Harvard University making it history by naming its first black president. Arts and Sciences Dean Claudine Gay has been tapped as the institution's 30th president. She's also only the second woman to hold that position. Gay's field of study is political behavior with a focus on race and politics in the United States. As a woman of color, as a daughter of immigrants, if my presence in this role affirms someone's sense of belonging at Harvard, that is a great honor. Claudine Gaze steps into her new role and her new job in July. Also today, the travel demand is surging right around the holidays. That means less love from the airlines, sadly, and fewer perks for you. Plus... Had I known that standing up for truth would cost me my job, friendships, and even my personal security, I would, without hesitation, do it all over again. Mm, powerful words from Republicans. I can rest easy at night, knowing that I fulfilled my oath to the office. Powerful words from Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, with a chilling warning to his fellow Republicans, this in his congressional farewell. I think they'll listen. All right, new this morning, we are about to hit another major holiday travel rush. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby told us on the show earlier this week that the airline is actually setting new records each month. But consumer advocates warn that that means some airlines are going to be cutting back on courting consumers. CNN's Pete Muntean is live. Where else? At Reagan National (laughs) Airport. Pete, I'm just telling you that you're going to have to pry my diamond medallion status out of my cold, dead hands if they're trying to take this away. (laughs) You know, the good news here, Caitlin, is that some airlines are not doing this, but some airlines simply 
are not trying as hard to court passengers. The equation here is pretty simple. The numbers are up. We're seeing numbers airlines have not seen since before the pandemic, and that means the value of your loyalty is going down. Stephanie Obogu is a proud frequent flyer, now frequently frustrated by the airlines. They wanted us to take advantage of travel, and then we finally do, and it's like, oh, wait, 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 now it's too much. Stephanie is just one of Delta Airlines loyalists, fuming over new rules. Next year, the company is making it harder to get into its more than 50 Sky Club lounges at airports worldwide. Delta cites customers upset over lines outside and crowded seating inside, telling frequent flyers, we have made the difficult decision to implement new policies that we believe will preserve the experience our guests deserve. I think this is the start of a trend. Scott Keyes of Scott's Cheap Flights says airlines are cutting back on perks now that travel numbers are back near pre-pandemic levels. United Airlines is anticipating end-of-year holiday travel even bigger than this past Thanksgiving. Next year, it will raise the bar on earning frequent flyer status, making it harder to get free upgrades and fees waived. It's going to be much more difficult to get into lounges, much more difficult to renew elite status, and much more difficult to redeem their frequent flyer miles for a free trip. A Delta flight from LAX to JFK over spring break would typically cost you 25,000 frequent flyer miles for an economy seat. Now, Scott's Cheap Flights says it will cost more than twice that, 52,000 miles. I think, you know, we're at a tipping point. Consumer advocates say earning miles has never been easier thanks to airline credit cards, but now redeeming miles is getting tougher. You enter these programs in good faith and you invest in them for years and years, and you find that the goalposts are a lot further away than they were when you started. Airlines are they're missing the mark here. I hope that they listen to the consumer and they really think about some of the decisions that they're making at the top level. Consumer advocates point out that there are big winners and losers here. The winners are those with high status already, airline credit cards. The losers are those right on the cusp of earning status. One of the latest airlines to change its loyalty program, American Airlines, will make it harder to achieve gold status starting in March. It'll now be 40,000 points as the benchmark. It was 30,000 points. That makes it harder, Caitlin, to get things like free upgrades and free check bags. Yeah, those 10,000 points make all the difference, Pete, as you know. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right, just in this morning, Ukrainian President Zelensky, this is so notable. He asked the World Cup to be able to share a message of peace this weekend at the final. He was rejected. We'll tell you what the reporting is. That's next. back everyone a little sports news this morning fifa rebuffing a request from ukrainian president vladimir Zelensky to share a message of world peace at the world cup final on sunday the source selling sin in Zelensky's office is offering to appear in a video to fans in the stadium in qatar ahead of the kickoff and was surprised by the negative response talks between ukraine and fifa are still underway though according to the source this year's World Cup has been mired in controversy over alleged human rights abuses in Qatar and the silencing of players and fans for voicing support for the LGBTQ community. Okay, switching gears, CNN's Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen are making the rounds ahead of this year's New Year's Eve bash. They stopped by The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and they talked dating apps. New Year's obviously is all about uh, new starts, uh, fresh starts, 
Uh, people take a new approach to love. Andy, are you ready to get back out there? I am. I'm back out there. I'm on the apps. I'm on Tinder. I'm on Raya. What's uh, Raya? I am. What's Raya? Raya is like a members-only uh, dating fancy. thing. Raya. It's a le- It seems like a lot of Instagram is influencers. There an inter- is there an interview process to get there, on? You have to be referred by someone oh, to God. get on. Oh, wow. Are and you on there? No. No, but I would like him to be, and I would like him to be on Tinder. No, I'm not on an app. I don't. Yes. I don't Can not. you imagine? What am I going to do? Swiping away through yeah. Tinder, and Anderson Cooper comes up. Yeah. Well, Hi. That'd be fantastic. Uh, be my, my, my favorite thing is to talk about the Battle of Rourke's Drift. <laughs> Let's sell Andy to the people out there. Best thing about wow. your friend here. Oh. Um, I mean, he's the life of the party. He's loyal. He's funny. He's yep. uh, a genuinely good person. Okay, let's be honest. What's the downside? <laughs> downside? Well, you got to be honest He here. works constantly. Okay. He produces content around the clock, and it's exhausting to be around. All right. Um... <laughs> All right, Andy. Let's get Andy. Andy, let's get Anderson out there. Let's okay. sell some tickets to Anderson Cooper. What, what's the best? Part? Uh, Silver Fox. You get lost in his big blue eyes. Uh, <laughs> super smart. Super uh, smart. Comes from the Vanderbilt lineage. A lot of baggage there. There's a lot of baggage. Highs, the downs, plus <laughs> and minus. Plus and minus. Um, but on the plus, he's a quick drunk. Quick drunk, <laughs> cheap date, there big giggler. There you go. Drunk. That is true. Anderson gets a little giggly when he. Just one or two glasses of wine. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. It's a, have you ever been on a dating app? Have you been on a dating app? Of course I'm on a dating app. You are? Yeah. Oh. Listen up, I guys. Say that. <laughs> I actually take that back. We're moving on. We are a thousand percent not moving on, but we are going to talk about you because you are Me not, being on a dating app? I'm no. not on a dating app. No, Timmy's not on a dating app, but you are on New Year's Eve. <laughs> New Year's Eve. I'm back. I'm back. What Nola, are you gonna, so excited. Same old spot right after Anderson and Andy. With we'll mom, see. Is mom going to make an appearance? Mom's going to make an appearance. Bidets. There's going to be hijinks. <laughs> hijinks. And we will see what happens down in New Orleans. They don't drink down there, I heard. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You read your Bible and you go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I, I mean, do. It'll be Bible verses with mom. <laughs> and then we'll be, no, we're going to have some fun. We'll see. Coming Can't up. wait. I'm going to yeah. put the kids to bed and try to stay awake. Yeah. Coming yes. up. So this major announcement from, uh, is this, this is the craziest story ever. Like, is it so five years ago, Caitlin, is so two years ago, NFT? It, it might be the craziest for today. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this announcement really turns good. out, Donald Trump's announcement turns out to be a digital trading cards of himself. Reaction from President Biden and Steve Bannon. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Oh, my God. There is not going to be any distinction in the future between journalists, civil journalists, and and regular people. Everyone's going to be treated the same. They're not special because you're a journalist. Hmm. Well, hmm, I don't know about that. Good morning, everyone. Friday. It's Friday. It's December 16th. And of course, there is Twitter hijinks. Twitter banning the accounts of high profile journalists. Is it a free speech issue or is Elon Musk just on a power trip right Mm, now? Russia with a relentless assault on Ukraine overnight. At least 60 missiles launched. And President Zelensky fears it could get worse in a matter of weeks. 
and police in Idaho tracking down 22,000 white Hyundai Elantras in their search for the killer of four college students. Also, the National Archives releasing thousands of new documents from the JFK assassination files. What we're learning this morning ahead. Begin this morning with Russia's air assault on Ukraine. 60 missiles have been launched so far, with the Russians reportedly using strategic bombers for the first time. The capital of Ukraine, Kyiv, is being targeted, and the mayor says there have been a series of explosions in the city with the water supply interrupted in every single district and metro service suspended. The Kharkiv region also getting pounded with reports of critical infrastructure facilities being hit. And CNN is also learning exclusively on top of this this morning, everything that's happening in Ukraine. President Zelensky's request to share a message of world peace prior to the kickoff at the World Cup final on Sunday has been rejected by FIFA. Will Ripley is live in Kiev for CNN this morning. Will, what's happening there on the ground with all of these assaults that we're seeing playing out overnight? Well, what they're saying here in the Ukrainian capital, Caitlin, is that this city has survived one of the most massive missile attacks by Russia since the start of the full-scale invasion, an invasion that left military vehicles like these destroyed. The reason why I'm standing here and not the scene of the actual strikes is because we're not allowed to show you where that is because of these strikes were targeting critical infrastructure. Now, Ukrainians are claiming that out of 40, 40 missiles fired at Kyiv, which is a large amount. Even our local journalists who've been covering this war say this is pretty astounding that they fired 40 right at the Ukrainian capital city. 37 of them, the Ukrainians claim they shot down, but three did hit their targets. And we heard the explosions here at our location. Uh, We lost power at our hotel. Water service has been shut off at the hotel as well. And uh, as you mentioned, the subway service is suspended. Tens of thousands of people have been taking shelter in the underground subway stations, which serve as bomb shelters when this sort of attack happens. This is an extraordinarily difficult situation uh, for the people of Ukraine because these attacks have not just hit Kyiv. They also hit up to the north, Kharkiv, as you mentioned, and Sumy, and down in the south, Odessa, cities that have just been pummeled, Caitlin, by barrage after barrage of Russian missiles and rocket attacks. Yeah, and this is a campaign against this infrastructure that has been going on since October. They are destroying this key infrastructure that civilians need. And, well, how cold is it right there? What are people doing right now when it's this cold and they don't have any power? It's extraordinary that we're not even at the official start of winter yet, and yet it's sub-zero temperatures every single day. It is freezing cold here in Ukraine. And it's just hard to imagine how people can live in their homes, sometimes for days on end after these attacks, without electricity and, crucially, without heat. Uh, UNICEF in recent days uh, put out a statement saying that the physical and mental health of every single Ukrainian child is at desperate risk right now because not only do they live with the terror of air raid sirens and bombs and explosions around them, but then they also have to survive in conditions that people shouldn't have to live through with such cold winter temperatures. And Ukraine's leadership, including the head of Ukraine's military, warning the worst may be to come early next year. They think the Russians may be preparing up to 200,000 additional troops for yet another ground invasion of Kyiv. Now, that comes with the caveat, of course, that both the Russians and the Ukrainians have deliberately used misinformation in the past and try to throw off the other side. We didn't have any credible intelligence cited in those comments uh, in The Economist uh, with Ukraine's uh, one of Ukraine's top generals, President Zelensky as well, warning of this. But nonetheless, Caitlin, the signs are not good. Uh, winter fighting may not be slowing down at all. It might actually just be revving up out here. Yeah, and a concern for the people who are still living there. Will Ripley, thank you.
Well, back here in the United States, storms that brought devastating tornadoes to Louisiana are moving north now, just as Americans make their plans for the holidays. The Nor'easter expected to bring ice and snow from Pennsylvania through New England. Some areas could see up to a foot of snow there. Heavy rains are in the forecast in metro areas like here in New York City and in Boston. Parts of the upper Midwest have already been slammed. In North Dakota, look at that. Those are frozen power lines, icicles hanging off them, lots of power outages as a result. And while Minnesota is trying this morning to dig out from almost two and a half feet of snow and even more is expected over the weekend. And as we head into winter, the Biden administration is urging Americans to help prevent another COVID surge. Listen. We don't want this winter to look like last winter or the winter before. The most important thing Americans can do is to go get their updated COVID-19 vaccine right away. The updated COVID-19 vaccine is your best protection against the version of COVID we're fighting right now. CNN medical correspondent Dr. Tara Narula is with us. This is right. It is a different kind of booster. So I think four now, right? My fourth. But it's different. And I was sort of confused and I had to go to my doctor and say, do, do I have this one? Do I need it? Right? Everyone needs to do that. Yeah, I think this is such an important reminder for us. So many of us are tired. We're tired of talking about the pandemic, of COVID, of viruses, of vaccines. There's so much fatigue around this. But it is important as we go into the holidays that we don't get complacent and that we really personalize this for people still. I mean, 3,000 people in that first week, this past week of December, lost their lives to COVID. 3,000 loved ones, um, 30,000 hospitalizations. And those hospitalization numbers have been going up since December. We know that only 14 percent of eligible Americans for that updated booster have gotten it. 14% live in areas in this country with high transmission, New York City, LA, uh, and one in five remain unvaccinated. And the group that we're really seeing high levels of hospitalization are seniors. Um, They're at four times higher risk of hospitalization. And data from September tells us that individuals over 12 who got that updated booster vaccine shot were 15 times lower, Mm. had a 15 times reduced chance of dying from COVID. So really important to just remind people, if you haven't gotten it, you know, we're not, we're still have enough time to build up some antibodies before Christmas and New Year's. This would be a great time to get the updated vaccine I shot. did a couple of weeks ago. I did the flu on this yeah. side yes. and COVID <laughs> on that side. And I'm like, all right, I'm good. And then, you know, I had the shingles but even before <laughs> that. So the shingles, I didn't have shingles, I had the vaccine. So let me, let me ask you, um, look, we have been going to, every, after COVID, right? Yeah. After the, I should say after the lockdowns, everyone wants to go. Everyone has parties exactly. and events and whatever. And I, and I, I want to say, I can't come because I don't want COVID. And I think that is a legitimate excuse, right? You say, I don't want to get COVID, but we're also going to be around our family members as well. So what's the advice here? What do we do? Well, we all have been talking about air filtration, ventilation. I mean, if you can be outdoors, we can't in the Northeast, but certainly celebrate outside. Um, Also the hand washing, disinfecting, masking. If you live in areas of high transmission or if you are around people who are immunosuppressed or who are at higher risk. Um, And then Dr. Jaw said yesterday, look, we have the tools, we have the infrastructure to handle this. And one of those real tools is COVID rapid antigen. Tests. The government now saying that they're again going to be giving out free tests four per household that will ship next week. This is a great way. Take that test right before you go and see grandma or mom or your family. Mm -hmm. Um, And then certainly to think about prescriptions like Paxlovid, if you do test positive and you're over 50 or you have one of these chronic health conditions. So there are things we can do. I mean, the rapid tests are really a great tool. I think they're by mail. Order them. Yes. Free. Okay. Well, I mean, how many we've had 
I think if we wrap a test every day, Poppy <laughs> every and I are morning. like, hey, I tested this I morning. I'm like, I did too. I don't want to get y'all sick. Don't get me sick. Yeah. Yeah, my kids know how to do it on themselves now, yeah. you know, six Thank and you. ten years old. Thanks. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> I appreciate that. We've got to talk about Twitter now because there's some craziness going on. Just like other social media platforms, it can be toxic, right? But around the world, millions also use Twitter to share information, get their voices heard, and stand up to power. But this morning, its new owner, Elon Musk, suspending the accounts of half a dozen prominent journalists including CNN's very own Donio Sullivan. He claims that the reporters, Elon Musk did, reporters violated one of Twitter's new rules. Musk falsely claims that these journalists violated his doxing policy, which bans any account that shares someone's live location. Okay, so instead, they were just reporting on the suspension of an account that continued posting the billionaire's private jet's whereabouts. He did not like that. Musk then suspended the journalist without explanation, then later failed to explain his move. Watch. There is not going to be any distinction in the future between journalists, so-called journalists, and, and regular people. Everyone's going to be treated the same. You're not special because you're a journalist. You're, you're just, you're, you're a Twitter, you're, just, you're a citizen. Um, so, uh, no special treatment. Um, you dox, you dox, you get suspended. End of story. Okay, so again, CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, was not sharing his location. And it is worth noting that Musk claims that he supports free speech over and over again and sold his Twitter takeover as a First Amendment beacon. Listen to this. Well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech, uh, where all, (laughs) so, uh, yeah. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Is someone you don't like allowed to say something you don't like? And if that is the case, then we have free speech. Okay, so let me just read CNN's response to the suspension of Donnie's account. And I quote here, The impulsive and unjustified suspension of a number of reporters, including CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, is concerning but not surprising. Twitter's increasing instability and volatility should be of incredible concern for everyone who uses Twitter. We have asked Twitter for an explanation, and we will reevaluate our relationship based on that response. I need to tell you that ahead, CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan is going to join us. You can hear what he has to say about being banned. Yeah, can't wait for that. Also this morning, police in Idaho are digging through details on about 22,000 white Hyundai Elantras is they are still hunting for the suspect in the murder of the four college students. Police are hoping to match it to the one that was spotted on the video near that rental home on the night that those students were killed as anguished parents are waiting for any new information on the investigation. CNN's Camilla Bernal is live for CNN this morning. It has been more than a month since these murders happened, and it seems like we still aren't getting hardly any details. Do police have any leads? What are they saying so far? Nothing new that we know of, Caitlin, and good morning. It has been a month, and that's where a lot of the frustration comes from. Look, they're going over 22,000 registered white Hyundai Elantras, so there's clearly a lot of work to be done here. They say all of these cars match their search criteria. That's in addition to the many, many new tips 
on this car as well. Um, but it's unclear if any of these tips have been helpful or have gotten them any closer to finding this killer. Look, the families are optimistic. They say they think they will find this killer, but they also say they're demanding accountability and communication from authorities. Kaylee Gonzalez's family speaking out through an attorney saying they support the police, but they need more. Here's that family attorney. Trust us has really been the theme. Trust us. We're making the right decision. Trust us. Well, you know, that only goes so far. And these are families that are grieving and have no information, so it has been extremely difficult. There is still so much fear and so much frustration in that community. Caitlin? Yeah, you can't blame them for wanting answers on this. Camilla Bernal, thank you. Well, the final three episodes of the Harry and Meghan docuseries on Netflix are creating quite a stir in the United Kingdom, some expressing sympathy for the Duke and Duchess, uh, others lashing out in defense of the late Queen's legacy. Uh, Scott, our Scott McLean joins us live for CNN this morning at Buckingham Palace. What, what are you hearing literally on the streets of London? Hey, Poppy. Well, there is definitely some sympathy. There is also a lot of deep sighs and even more eye rolling going on today. Or if you're the royal family, well, the reaction there has been a very stiff upper lip. It seems that there is very little that the Sussexes could say at this point that would genuinely shock the British public, but they have succeeded in getting their attention. It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and, and my grandmother, you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. The final revelations made in Harry and Meghan's Netflix series have been met with stone-cold silence from Buckingham Palace, but not from the British public or the press. The morning after, the tabloids can't get enough, though it was the Prince and Princess of Wales on nearly every front page. The male casting Prince William in a soft light compared to Harry's savage onslaught, while the son labeled him a traitor, declaring war on his own family. Others questioned the couple's motives and their honesty. Harry and Meghan take their audience for fools. They blame everybody but themselves. They present even the most incendiary of claims with no evidence. And sadly, the impact is real. The Prince Harry surely is now a traitor to the country that he once served. Essentially, Harry is using the media to complain about the media, but really to complain about his brother. Quite painful. It's just rather unedifying, mm. I think. And mm. I think they're losing the, the war of public opinion. A new poll shows the once wildly popular couple now have more detractors than fans in the UK, with a net popularity rating of minus three for Harry and minus 19 for Meghan. Still far better than Prince Andrew, but far worse than King Charles or Harry's brother, Prince William. The same poll found almost six in 10 Brits think that making the Netflix series at all was a bad idea. I think he should move on and not throw his family under the bus. I just think that it's, there's a little bit of desperation about it. And you know, his brother's gonna be the King of England. Is that any way really for him to be going on, really, making documentaries on Netflix? Do you think they should have made it in the first place? No. If they're seeking privacy, probably not. If you're going to run away from the press, run away from the press. You know, don't... Um, I, I'm leaving London because the press has been awful to me, but then I'm going to let Netflix into my house. It's aimed at uh, division, complete division. Uh, it's the royal family. It's, 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 it's about breaking apart. 
Poppy, it is pretty remarkable that, frankly, any royals made the front covers of even the more respected papers in this country, considering the many other crises that the U.K. is facing. Yesterday, nurses walked out on strike. Today, it is railway workers. I have to say that the more you talk to people in this country, whether it was after the Queen's death or just this morning, you find that most people, it seems, regardless of what side of the royal rift they're on, want to see the brothers. They want to see King Charles reconcile their differences and start to rebuild their relationship, though at this point, of course, that seems like a pretty distant fantasy. It does. You're right. There's a lot else that should be above the fold on those uh, papers. That's for sure. Scott McLean, thanks very much outside Buckingham Palace. All right. We are just days away from the release of the January 6th report, something that has been months in the making from that committee. And as we are just days away from it, we are getting a farewell speech from one of the two Republicans who was on that committee, Adam Kinzinger, who during a farewell speech yesterday was talking about his leave from Congress, wrapping up the committee's work and what he believes is a reflection of the Republican Party. The once great party of Lincoln, Roosevelt and Reagan has turned its back on the ideals of liberty and self-governance. Instead, it has embraced lies and deceit. We shelter the ignorant, the racist, who only stoke anger and hatred to those who are different than us. Joining us now is CNN's chief political correspondent and co-anchor of State of the Union, Dana Bash. Dana, it's remarkable. I mean, this isn't anything new for Adam Kinzinger. He has been quite Mm -hmm. critical of his own party, especially with Trump in office on January 6th. But that he's choosing to make that his farewell speech on the floor for a reason. Yes, he is incredibly frustrated, incredibly sad. I'll give you a little, don't tell anybody, I'll give you a little preview. But I talked to him for our uh, uh, January 1st uh, New Year's Day show on State of the Union, and he gets emotional. He is emotional. He um, feels very uh, abandoned by the people in his party, by his colleagues uh, who did not stand up to the former president, did not stand up to the people who he serves with still every single day when they didn't act and react the way he expected them to after they were attacked by the people who were um, who were stoked and uh, and people who were following the conspiracy theories of the former president. And it just is so telling. I mean, you all remember, it wasn't that long ago that he was the darling of the GOP. Yeah. Uh, perfect resume, uh, able to, to, to talk on TV, a military guy. I mean, he's, he's still in the reserves. And uh, look at where he is today. He, he decided to retire because he was going to lose a primary. Mm. So um, we'll see, and we'll, I can't wait to see that interview. But let's talk about something that you, um, something else that you're doing. And you interviewed Governor Chris Sununu, right, for your CNN special. It's called Being, is it Being Sununu? Is that exactly what it is? Being Chris Sununu. Being Chris Sununu. And his relationship <laughs> with uh, Donald Trump and his bid for 2024. Watch this. Thinks he is, right? That's why, you know, when the former president announced that he's running for president a week after the election, I, everyone went, okay. He's announcing he's running for president at his most politically weak point. He's doing it from a point of weakness, from a point of whatever his own agenda is. But it's kind of just a blip on the radar. There's an argument to be made he's not even the front runner, right? Sununu always had a unique relationship with Trump, critical at times. 
You know, we know the president uh, has a tendency to speak in hyperbole and tweet things out and all that stuff. Would you like to have the former president campaign with you in your re-election campaign in New Hampshire? I don't need anyone to campaign with me. Donald Trump does not define Chris Sununu. He doesn't even define the Republican Party. But he somehow escaped Trump's famous counterpunch. You've managed to walk this line that most Republicans have not. How? Well, you know, early on when he became president, uh, we made it really clear, both with him, we had a relationship, and, and with the White House, that look, when, when he does things with policy and regular, whatever, if he does things that deserve credit, I'll be the first one to stand up and give him credit. But when you have a tone or something that I disagree with, or he says things or does things I disagree with, I'm going to say that too. It's interesting because he's saying all that, but he's also, you know, touting Ron DeSantis as a stronger candidate than Donald Trump. He said that to me unprompted, guys, uh, when we were talking about the 2024 field. As you can imagine, I did ask about his plan. You'll have to tune in tonight to see what he said about that. But Wait, we what? Talking... You won't tell us, Dana? Come on. <laughs> we were talking more broadly about the field. Uh, he said, you know, as you heard, Donald Trump ne isn't necessarily even, even the front runner and that he shouldn't be president. Uh, again, because the country has rightly moved on from him. It was very, very uh, pretty harsh when it comes to, to Donald Trump. But we also it, the the whole uh, goal of this series is to spend time with the people in the news, the people who you cover on your show and have interviews with like you do with Chris Anunu and spent some quality time with him in New Hampshire. I'll just tell you that there was some uh, getting on a ladder, not me, him putting uh, some homemade decorations, Halloween decorations on his house. He has a vintage 1966 red Mustang and we may have gotten in it to go buy a pumpkin. Ooh, that's quite a tease if I've ever heard one. Okay. <laughs> it, is, it is fascinating though what he said we, about DeSantis, especially with the, yeah. the CNN polls we were talking about yesterday about how a lot of Republicans don't think Trump should be the nominee and, and they like DeSantis as their second best bet. Yeah. That, that's right. And you know, look, he talked about before the election, uh, he predicted to me that uh, the Republican candidate for Senate, Don Bolduc, would win. He lost by nine points. Mm. And afterwards, he admitted, you know, I was wrong. And it was so telling uh, about how he was so confident that he knew his state, uh, that he knew where the, 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 the trends were. And the fact that he so misjudged how Republicans would do in his own state is very telling about how Republicans nationwide misjudged where things are. So there's a lot of soul searching right now. He is one of the uh, people who is doing that and trying to help uh, figure out where the party should go. Yeah. Can't wait to watch that. Dana Bash, thank you so much. Thanks, DB. Thanks, guys. See you. And you can join her for that conversation with Governor Sununu. Hear what it's like about being a Republican governor in a purple state and what his attention is on as he is trying to maybe chart a new course for his party. Being Chris Sununu will air tonight at 10 o'clock Eastern. Looking forward to that. Now to CNN Money this morning. Take a look at stock futures. It looks ugly as the market opens here this Friday. Could be another very rough day on the street following Thursday's sell-off, which saw the Dow fall 765 points or 2.3 percent. Investors really concerned about the latest guidance from the Federal Reserve after they raised that benchmark short-term interest rate by a half a percentage point on Wednesday. This is their latest effort to try to tame inflation. The Fed, though, also said 
that they don't think the U.S. economy will grow very much at all in 2023. And that's why you're seeing such a sell-off on Wall Street. The central bank is predicting a bigger jump also in unemployment in the next year, a larger rise in consumer prices and higher interest rates than it had expected in September. Also, on top of this, the Commerce Department this week said that in November, they saw the steepest decline in retail sales in 11 months. That reflects a very lackluster start to the holiday shopping season as consumers are cutting back on their spending. Ahead, former President Trump made what he calls a major announcement. Why it has Steve Bannon even saying, quote, I can't do this anymore. Engine ignition and the liftoff. And lift NASA off. is set to get an unprecedented view of Earth's water. How this ever-changing resource affects our climate. Former President Trump announced today he is releasing a collection of digital trading cards. It's what his doctors are calling a new symptom. (laughs) The ex-president of the United States, (laughs) the ex-most powerful man in the world, has launched a line of trading cards. It's Gropimon with Pikachu. Even the most diehard Trump supporters were like, okay, now I'm worried. Okay, this is... <laughs> Even the My Pillow guy was going, I think Trump's lost it, okay? <laughs> Late night host mocking what Trump had claimed was going to be this major announcement. Some speculating maybe it had something to do with his presidential campaign or the House Speaker fight. No, it was an online store to sell $99 digital trading cards right. of himself. President Biden mocked Trump on Twitter, listing his own, quote, major announcements from the past couple of weeks, talking about inflation, the Respect for Marriage Act, Brittany Griner's release. You know, joining us now is CNN senior political analyst John Avalon and CNN political commentator and political anchor for Spectrum News, Errol Lewis. You know, I talked to people in Trump's orbit about this. Even they were like, what? (laughs) Like, even people who are normally his allies that defend everything he does, they were like, I don't, I don't know if I Even people who get this. participated in the January 6th insurrection are saying, I went to jail for an NFT. Right. I mean, no, what, that's right. what, the, what is this? Has he an <laughs> NFT? It, it, it's, it's another cheesy grift, him trying to monetize his hardcore supporters. It shows how fundamentally unseriously he's taking this run for president and, and how unseriously he takes anything except himself. Uh, and, and, and even that turns into a cartoon version. This is just more nonsense. And if, if this is the big reveal some folks need, um, let's just be clear. It's not that he got bad advice. It's that he is bad advice. And he did this to himself. Can we listen to what Steve Bannon said about it? Because yeah. I think this will kind of encapsulate <laughs> the reaction from even Trump's allies. I can't do this anymore. He's one of the greatest presidents in history. But I got to tell you, whoever, what business partner, and anybody in the comms team, and anybody in Mar-a-Lago, and I love the folks down there, but we're at war. They ought to be fired today. You came out with something that's so important, which I still don't think gets to the heart of it. And hey, you don't have three harder cores than Cortez, Bannon, and Sub Gork. I mean, <laughs> I'm very criticizing you. When you uh, love Steve Bannon. Look, Steve Bannon has been sentenced to prison. Uh, he's supposed to spend time behind bars um, for defending Trump and uh, so disrespecting and, well, it's the, the charges contempt of Congress. He refused to give any information to the January 6th committee. Um, this is somebody who battled for Trump uh, over and over and over again. And when he says, 
you know, he sounded to me like he was just kind of thinking out loud. I can't I can't keep doing this uh, because this has nothing to do with any cause whatsoever, not even winning power, not even no. winning the race. I mean, this is somebody who declared for president in um, what, mid mid-November. Has he done any events? No, he's not done one single event. But he has put out superhero trading cards of himself. Yeah, but everyone which thought, is non, which everyone is crazy thought that this would be something where he would announce an event. I mean, but seriously, this is a, this is a grift, right? Yeah, of course he's, he's raising money once again from, you know, people who, quite frankly, don't have a lot of money, right? And they're sending money to him. Him personally, not, and, not his campaign against. Yes. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Right. That's so a good he point. Will fleece, he will fleece his fans until... Everybody's off the stage. So when is enough enough? When do people say I'm done? Well, you know, I, I would suggest, by the way, while while we perhaps are talking to some of these folks, maybe send the ninety nine dollars to your local soup kitchen or some people who need it in this holiday season. Um, you know, people are I think are going to have to grow up at some point. I mean, Trump and Trumpism and what he means to this country was always about how do you react to this person? with uh, the vulgarity and the obscenity and the, the different things that Trump brings to the table, are you going to accept it? Are you going to fund it? Are you going to look the other way? Or are you going to maybe just opt out, which is maybe the easiest thing to do at this point? This, this is somebody who... I'm your favorite president, hopefully, and I've got a I mean, fancy I mean, put, new Put aside that hype greater than stuff, George right? Washington. <laughs> this ain't that, you know, I mean, you're, you're bad at saying, you know, one of the greatest presidents in American history. This guy's going to be in the, the bottom five, you know, if he's lucky. Um, <laughs> this is a guy who tried to overturn democracy. And now he's trying to grasp onto power. It still has a lot of hardcore supporters. And here he's just fleecing them with trading cards of himself as a superhero. It is just, it is another cheesy grift. Are you going to get the essence the kids? of who the dude is? Poppy? Yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> Wallpaper? <laughs> That's my only addition to this segment. Are you kidding? <laughs> I can't you even. cannot be serious. You're the John McEnroe of this conversation. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, Thank but I wonder what I, I do wonder what when you said, are you kidding? I would do wonder what, you know, people who live in the rest of the country. Right. All the, mm -hmm. the big part we bring in the world home is our tagline here. Mm -hmm. What will they think of this? This it really isn't do. about New York. I'm a Minnesota girl and I'm just like, this is just beyond. Well, I wonder what your family's yeah. thinking, yeah. you know. We'll ask. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's look, it's, some people say it's just Trump being Trump and it's more sort of cartoon nonsense. But 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 again, this is a time when there are serious things going on. Um, and 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 this is a person who's fundamentally yeah. he's just beclowning himself again. And and some of his hardcore supporters are realizing that, you know, there's no there there. But clowning, but clowning, clowning. Okay. Well, and I think the concern we, we, we is conjugate that later. his yeah. campaign. It's precisely what you said. He isn't really he, it was yesterday, a month yesterday that he had announced he's running. They haven't planned any rallies. They haven't announced any events. That's what people were hoping this was going to be, right. an, an outline of what his campaign's going to look like, something right. like that. Even his own advisors want well, to I see mean, that. Look, here we are five it. years after the fact, after he came down the escalator, still making the same mistake, thinking yeah. that there's that this fits somehow I, in the frame I of normal politics. I think we've, we've wasted it. Yeah, but yeah, that, we, we should it. be we talking about jump. the things that actually need to get done in Washington right now, the people doing serious Let's business. Let's talk about a bill next. By the way, Biden is winning, Trump. Bill, better get it together. Thank you, Errol. Thank you, John. Take care, guys. 59 years later. But we could learn from the release of thousands of documents related to the JFK assassination. And CNN is live in El Paso, Texas, as border officials are bracing for more of a massive surge in migrants crossing the border. Here's what they're expecting this weekend. 
there are a number of people who are choosing not to cross just yet. They say they're waiting until next week to figure out what happens with Title 42 to figure out if they will cross. And they're doing that because they don't want to risk being deported. What would it mean if Donald Trump was re-elected president? I don't think it'll happen. No, American no. people have gotten wise to it. Mm. Took and a little I, while, oh, yeah. but they did. I don't think that we should talk about him while we're eating. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait to see this whole interview that Jamie Gangel did. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up, we have more of Jamie's sit-down uh, interview with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, what they're saying about a Biden re-election over really good Chinese food, as you can see. And the Senate buying themselves some time and passing a stopgap bill to avert a government shutdown for another week. Plus, our very own Donny O'Sullivan, one of the journalists banned by Elon Musk from Twitter overnight, what he will tell us, what he thinks about all of this crackdown on free speech. Now to this fascinating story this morning. Nearly six decades after his assassination, the National Archives just released more than 13,000 documents related to JFK's assassination. The release of the previously classified documents is the second of two document dumps ordered last year by President Biden. Senior correspondent Mr. Tom Foreman has the details for us. Tom, good morning to you. What's in the documents? A lot. And this is a huge volume of documents. 13,000? This is like 11 copies of War and Peace all being dumped at once. Uh, what's in it mainly, though, seems to be a lot of minutia, a lot of little details about all the endless, endless leads that authorities were looking at at this time. So there's information about how they were wiretapping uh, the Soviet embassy down in Mexico and about how they were following phone calls that came in from nowhere about almost nothing. It was a huge, huge amount. What's also striking about this as you read through it is that there is no sign. I say read through it. I'm nowhere near getting through all these pages. It's going to take a long time. Um, there's no sign that there's any uh, really big revelation in here. This really is about filling in all the little gaps because, remember, this is the tail end of a huge amount of information that's been released over a long period of time, roughly 5 million pages overall. And I just did the math a while ago. If you wanted to read all the pages that the federal government has on the Kennedy assassination, start reading now. Never stop. One page a minute. You'll be done in a little over nine years. Oh, my uh... goodness. Yeah, it's right. a lot of paper. We'll get started now. You know, what stood out to me about this is that this is something that was an effort in the Trump administration, an effort in the Biden administration. It's kind of releasing, there's no smoking guns in it, but it still is important for all of these documents to be out there for historians, for the archives, to be able to look through what they looked at with these five million pages. Oh, yeah. If you're, if you're somebody who lives for this sort of research, I mean, this is really a treasure trove constantly. Lots of information. One of the big questions people said is, why has it taken so long to dump it? Well, when you look at it, you see that, that this is something that the intelligence community is very sensitive about. People knowing some of their methods, knowing some of the things they have done, some of the contacts they've had, even many, many years later, which, of course, conspiracy theorists look at and say, aha, that's the whole point. You don't want us to know what you were up to. Uh, this will fuel that fire as well. Hmm. Tom Foreman, would you say in nine years? How long? Nine years. Nine, nine I, yeah, years. I'll be. I'll be busy. 
I'll be busy for a while. <laughs> we'll you. bring Appreciate you back. It, Thank you. Have a great weekend. We'll see you soon. You're welcome. So we're going to talk about a bill next to protect pregnant workers from discrimination with broad bipartisan support, but it is stalled in Congress. Hear why. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Groups across the political and ideological spectrum are urging the Senate to pass the Pregnancy Workers Fairness Act before they leave for recess. This is a bill that has already passed the House by a wide margin. It would require businesses to make what they what are deemed reasonable accommodations for employees who are pregnant, have given birth, or have related medical conditions. And this bill has really broad bipartisan support. In, it is sponsored by senators on the left and the right. It is supported by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, by labor unions, by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and many of the nation's leading employers. Republican Senator Bill Cassidy told Politico last month, quote, the clock is ticking. This is a bipartisan bill that is pro-mothers, pro-healthy pregnancies, pro-workers. Let's get it through the Senate by the end of the year. But when it came up for a procedural vote to advance in the Senate last week, it was blocked. So in a new CNN opinion piece titled, we disagree about abortion, but with one voice support this urgently needed law. Four legal and historical scholars on opposite sides of the abortion debate came together to urge Congress to pass it. And they write, without this bill, employers can discriminate against pregnant workers who need common sense help, denying them exemptions from heavy lifting, as well as bathroom breaks or water breaks, sometimes at the cost of their jobs. And health. So joining us now to talk about this, Mary Zeigler, professor of law at UC Davis and Reva Siegel, professor of law at Yale Law School. I should note, I was a student in Professor Siegel's constitutional law class. So thank you both um, very much for being here. Professor Siegel, let me begin with you. I think all our viewers will say, but I thought that, you know, pregnancy discrimination at work was illegal already. Why isn't the current Pregnancy Discrimination Act enough? So, First of all, Pabi, thanks for having us on. Um, I think that it's important that we managed to pass the Pregnancy Discrimination Act in 1978, and it's done important work in beginning to shift norms. Uh, but the way that courts have interpreted it, uh, they, the, the act is understood to essentially provide same treatment uh, and nothing more. And uh, oftentimes it's the case that employees uh, have difficulty coming up with evidence that there's a comparator, someone who's similarly situated to them in ability or inability to work, and mm -hmm. courts don't buy it. Also, there's concern that the act um, doesn't provide for even modest accommodations, reasonable accommodations in the workplace, at least as courts have interpreted it. And so it can leave uh, working uh, pregnant people high and dry and out of a job, and often, too often has done, Often it's as if the act even weren't there. And that's the reason, that's the impetus for the act here. So Professor Ziegler, I had read a stat that two thirds of pregnant women actually lose their discrimination uh, cases in court. And I think that's because of what Professor Siegel was saying, how this is interpreted often, how federal law is interpreted. Can you explain what a reasonable accommodation actually is, what this bill would change if, you, if, if it can make it through? Yeah, the, the model for the bill, uh, we already have the Americans with Disabilities Act, and a lot of viewers are familiar with that if they have family members with disabilities. This would be kind of extending similar logic to pregnant workers, right? So employers wouldn't have to do anything that's an undue hardship for them financially or otherwise. But um, accommodations that are reasonable and doable for the employer would be available for that pregnant worker. And I think what's important, too, is not just that 
those pregnant workers would be able to get accommodations, but that requests for accommodations would no longer be serving as a basis for termination. One of the more kind of talking things that we see now is that employers will use requests for accommodation um, as, a, as an excuse to terminate. So we're seeing this not just that employees are losing accommodations that they need, um, sometimes to avoid things like negative pregnancy outcomes like miscarriage, but also that employers are using that sometimes as an excuse to get rid of employees who are doing a good job at work. So this is sort of extending disability protections to pregnant workers um, that I, we think they deserve. What's interesting, Professor Siegel, is where the hang-up seems to be, even though this is supported by so many groups with so many different perspectives, including the U.S. Conference of Bishops, the Chamber of Commerce, et cetera, is, is abortion. Uh, and I want you to listen to uh, Republican Senator Tillis, who, who blocked this from progressing, about his concern. Here he is. I absolutely want to make sure that those sort of reasonable accommodations are accounted for. However, in its current form, this legislation before us would give federal bureaucrats at the EEOC authority to mandate that employers nationwide provide accommodations, such as leave to obtain abortions. Unlike Title VII and the Americans with Disabilities Act, this legislation contains no exemptions for religious organizations. I know this is still in the works, but on the abortion concern, I wonder what your response is. Well, I guess I have two responses. Um, one, it really goes to the merits of where we stand, which is, uh, I guess I'd say, especially in the months after the Dobbs decision, it's absolutely crucial that we get this done and we find a way to get it done. And the reason that all of us got together, that is to say on both sides of the aisle, uh, to emphasize this legislation uh, is that it's critical that we find a path through and the way in which the bill was drafted was a kind of, uh, it already has some language providing um, for exclusions along lines of abortion that was sufficient even for the U.S. Conference of Bishops. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to get into the weeds, but it's, it's already, there's language in there. Secondly, we have uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act on the books um, as a backstop. And thirdly, there's already some kind of negotiations under works, the details of which I don't really, uh, we can't mm -hmm. know, and not a good thing to sort of try to get into on the show. Uh, but I, I, I don't want people to lose sight of the prize that um, we can't turn everything into a debate about abortion. Mm -hmm. People who care about this issue do care about making sure that working people have the ability to hang on to their jobs if pregnant. That has to be the core issue. And, and finally, to you, uh, Professor Ziegler, this is something also echoed in this recent piece in the National Review by a conservative attorney, Rachel Morris, who essentially said the same thing that Tillis is saying. She writes, it's almost certain related medical conditions will be interpreted to include abortion. Just final word to address that and your concern if this doesn't pass. Well, I, I think one of the reasons we wrote the piece is that the, the kind of the word on the street is that it's kind of now or never with this bill, given that it has doesn't have a lot of support, um, allegedly, among incoming House Republicans. And I just reinforce something Professor Siegel said, which is that, um, one, I hope whatever impasse is addressed, I don't think that abortion should be um, a justification for taking away protections for pregnant workers at a time when if, if the Dobbs decision has an effect, more people will be pregnant, right? More people will be facing mm -hmm. termination and discrimination. 
So I think this is a time when, you know, people in Congress need to figure this out because this is something that Americans overwhelmingly support. Americans who disagree on abortion overwhelmingly support. Um, And so while I, I agree with Professor Siegel that I don't particularly find these religious liberty concerns to be that pressing, given the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and given the negotiations that are ongoing, I think what's important to remember is that pregnant workers deserve these protections and we need to find a way to get this done before the recess. Yeah, I think it's eye opening to a lot of people who assume that those protections were airtight um, and they're not. So thank you both for for writing this and getting together with folks who disagree with you to write this for for CNN.com. We appreciate it. We'll track it very closely. Thank you. Poppy, we we Thanks hope for having America us. find a way to do this together. You know, it's for moms. There you go. Thank you, professors. Caitlin. We love the moms. (laughs) Ahead, we will have more on the suspension of several prominent journalists on Twitter overnight. One of those is CNN's Donio Sullivan. How could anyone ban Donny? Join us live next. We'll talk about the real implications of this decision. Friday. Good morning, everyone. December 16th. Guess what hour it is to answer your question. <laughs> so this is a little thing I always say in the six o'clock hour. Are we in the eight o'clock hour yet? And they, Every, I knew that was coming. It's an adult version of are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> well, for me, adult, <laughs> come on. Uh, we're going to catch you up on the five things first here on CNN this morning. So Kiev is where we start. Surviving one of the most massive missile attacks by Russia. Since the start of the invasion, 76 missiles fired into Ukraine with the Kremlin reportedly using strategic bombers for the first time. Kyiv's water supply interrupted in all districts. Kharkiv also bombarded with reports of critical infrastructure facilities being hit. Also this morning, a sprawling winter storm is blasting the northeast and impacting millions. The nor'easter bringing at least a foot of snow from Pennsylvania to New England and heavy rain in all the other areas. Almost two and a half feet of snow slammed parts of Minnesota and other parts of the upper Midwest, leaving thousands without power in these chilly temperatures. The mother of one of the victims in the Idaho College murders says that she is frustrated with the lack of communication with police as they are combing through the authorities there. Now the registrations of 22,000 white Hyundai Elantras, which could be linked to a vehicle spotted on the video Near the home where the four murders took place, still, if you can believe it, a month later, no suspects in this case. A satellite that will survey most of the Earth's water is on its way to space to board a SpaceX uh, Falcon 9 rocket. Engine ignition and the liftoff. Liftoff of SWAT. Okay, so it lifted off from Vandenberg Space Force Base in California just over an hour ago. The International Surface Water and Ocean Topography Mission is designed to show how oceans influence climate change, as well as how global warming impacts lakes, rivers, and reservoirs. Jane Fonda announcing her cancer is in remission. This is good news. The soon-to-be 85-year-old actress has been battling non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and started chemotherapy in September. In a new blog post, she just revealed that her oncologist informed her that she can stop treatments. Fonda credits her recovery to everyone who sent prayers and good thoughts her way. That is great news. Great. That is great news. We're rooting for you, Ms. Fonda. But we're going to begin with Texas, bracing for a crush of migrants at the southern border this weekend. The surge is already building ahead of the 
lifting of Title 42. That's next week. That's a Trump-era policy that allows U.S. border authorities to swiftly turn away migrants on public health grounds. All this while the U.S. immigration courts report a record high in backlog cases, over 2 million of them. Wait times for asylum seekers to have a hearing is now averaging longer than four, four years. That is according to a data research organization at Syracuse University. Straight down to CNN's Ed Lavendera for CNN this morning. He is in El Paso, Texas. Ed, what are you seeing? Good morning to you. Good morning, Don. Well, there could be some legal movement on what happens with Title 42 later today. We'll have to wait and see. But right now, the concern is the number of people sleeping on the streets. This is the scene uh, where you see dozens of people gathered around prominently or uh, typically around the bus stations in downtown El Paso. And that is because a lot of these uh, people are families. Uh, they have been released from Border Patrol custody at different points. So they kind of congregate around the bus stations as, as a safe gathering point for them. Uh, but this is what they've been dealing with within frigid temperatures. As we've been reporting, the, uh, the shelters over capacity, Border Patrol uh, processing centers over capacity as well. Uh, so this has been a great concern. Last night, we saw uh, officials from the emergency management office here in El Paso walking the streets, trying to urge some of these people to uh, get into shelters that still had some available space uh, last night. Uh, but this is the scene that's unfolding out here on the streets this morning. You were, uh, you were, were on the other side of the border in uh, Juarez, Mexico, just yesterday. Ed, tell us what you saw. Well, you know, we saw a long and orderly line of people still crossing the river, waiting for Border Patrol to allow them in so that they can get processed. But what really struck out to me, uh, Don, yesterday in our reporting from Juarez is just how many people are still on the Mexican side of the Rio Grande from El Paso uh, that are waiting to see what's going to happen. So the shelters over there and that deal with that help migrants are also to capacity. We went into one uh, that had you know, close to 100 people, uh, almost 50 percent more than they would normally have. And a lot of those people told us they're waiting to see what happens with Title 42 next week. They don't want to cross now because they don't want to get deported. But they are waiting to see what happens with Title 42. So there are a lot of people on the other side of the border waiting to see what happens next week. All right, Ed, you'll be reporting. Thank you very much, Ed Lavendero. It was just 18 days ago when Elon Musk said we are in, quote, a battle for the future of civilization. If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. That was then. But now Twitter overnight has suspended the accounts of several prominent journalists who cover him. The new CEO says that these users violated the site's rules one day after Twitter changed its policy on sharing live location information, mainly to justify suspending an account that tracked and shared the data from his own private jet. Musk is now arguing that these reporters violated the doxing policy, which was intended to prevent the sharing of private information of users like their addresses or their phone numbers, even though these reporters didn't do that. Yet Musk stood behind his decision late last night. You dox, you get suspended. End of story. Um, so, and 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 Elon, and, and, you, and, and ban you, evasion, ban evasion, or like, or, or trying to be clever about it. Like, oh, I posted a link to the real time information. It's obviously uh, that is obviously simply trying to evade the the, the meaning. That is, there's no different from than paste than actually showing real time information. So, why does all of this matter? Since buying Twitter, Musk has said repeatedly that he stands for free speech and he wants to expand it on the site. But what he has said has largely been inconsistent with what he has done. Back in November, Musk said he would not ban the account that tracks the location of his private jet. This week he did. 
Back in October, Musk said that Twitter would establish a moderation council to decide whether or not an account should be reinstated, saying that no major content decisions will happen before that council convenes. It never did. He then restored former President Trump's account after conducting a Twitter poll. Also, since announcing his purchase of Twitter, Elon Musk has sold his takeover as a beacon of free speech, including these comments that he made back in April. Well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech, uh, where all, so, uh, yeah. Um, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Is someone you don't like allowed to say something you don't like? And if that is the case, then we have free speech. That was in April. Since then, he has punished his critics and journalists on a platform that people around the world rely on for critical information. He's now taking the unprecedented step of suspending journalists from a major social media platform and drawing criticism from world leaders as a result. The German foreign minister chiming in this morning saying press freedom cannot be switched on and off on a whim. One of those journalists who was banned last night is CNN's Donio Sullivan. He joins us now. There are a lot of things to clear up here. Mm. I think the most important is an accusation that he made. Elon Musk said, quote, they posted my exact real time location. Did you do that? No, that's just entirely false. And from what we can see, the other journalists who have been suspended as well also did not post his precise live location. What did you do? This all, <laughs> this all goes back. I poked the billionaire. Um, this all goes back to a few days ago when there's this account that tracks the location using publicly available of information plane. of his plane. Uh, and he kicked that off Twitter. He changed the rules to make it against Twitter's rules. Um, and we were reporting on that. We were reporting on, on the shutdown yesterday. Um, and late last night, uh, last night around 7, 8 p.m., um, colleague Oliver Darcy uh, texted me to say, you've been suspended from Twitter. Yeah. So you really, I, I wasn't joking. I'm serious. What did you do? You just simply reported on yeah, Twitter we, and we, Elon Musk. We did reporting. And look, I mean, I think it's important to point out here. Twitter is a private company. Yeah. It can do whatever the hell it wants, yeah. okay? Uh, you know, when it kicked off Donald Trump um, back in January 2021, um, many people said, look, Trump has other platforms, Twitter, we, as we spoke about yesterday, the First Amendment does not apply to Twitter. Uh, but coming from the guy who's the free speech absolutist, uh, who, <laughs> who says he wants this to be a beacon of free expression, it is quite something to see him batting journalists who all just happen uh, to cover him critically, but I would also say fairly. You obviously have a unique perspective because you've been reporting on him in this and you'll continue to. You're also in the middle of it in a mm. weird way that journalists don't want to be, don't want to become the story. The question is, what levers are there to pull now? You heard what the German foreign minister, I think that mm. was, said. Um, what will businesses do? What will media companies that advertise on it do? CNN says they're reevaluating our relationship with Twitter in that statement. What will big advertisers like an Apple do? I mean, I think our colleague Oliver, who's been reporting this out this morning, also said that that is uh, something to watch. Um, you know, I think one thing that's really important to, to stress here is um, I have a platform. I'm on CNN with you guys right now. Uh, we are in the privileged position, really, yeah. as journalists, where if we want to quit Twitter, we're still going to be able to report and do our jobs. For a lot of independent freelance journalists around the world, you know, the reality is they have to be on Twitter because that is where editors and, and publishers will see their work and might hire them. 
I worry about the chilling effect that this might have on those reporters, particularly when you think that Musk also owns these other companies, Tesla and SpaceX. What if you're in Germany or elsewhere and you're reporting uh, on maybe poor working conditions? Is he going to come and and just stamp you down because he says, oh, that's against the rules? Wow. I'm still fascinated, though, about how this actually went down. Mm. You said our our colleague Oliver Darcy is the one who told you that you Mm. got suspended? Yes, that's correct. Does that mean Twitter had not... They didn't email you. They didn't say, hey, no. you're in violation of this policy. Don't do this or don't do this. Yeah, as far as I see, I couldn't. I didn't get an email. About an hour or so after I got banned, after Oliver told me, uh, I did get the message on my account, which I think we just showed there a minute ago, where it says you are permanently, permanently. Uh, suspended. I want to know what you think about that phone call last night. Was he just, <laughs> with reporters, was he just being a big baby because it, it's, it has happened before when he doesn't like the questioning? He just runs away. Right. Mm. So he engaged in what is a Twitter space, which is this kind of live audio discussion on Twitter last night, even with some of the other journalists who were banned. And when one of them put to him, they said, well, look, if you really look at your rules here, we didn't break them. Um, And he, you know, he came up with some kind of nonsense that that you guys played there a minute ago. uh, And then he just dropped um, off the call. Well, I emailed him a couple weeks ago (laughs) for an interview. Well, maybe I heard back. Elon Musk, where are you? But is it a Camera one, suspension? Elon Musk. So, yeah, that's a good come question. Come on the right, show. Right now, officially, what I've been told on my Twitter is that it is a permanent suspension. Last night, he I did a poll. He did a little poll. It looks like he might be backtracking a bit, and it's possible. Well, didn't he do another poll because he didn't like what that poll yes. showed that yeah, you guys yeah. should be reinstated? <laughs> you know, yeah. The first poll was rigged. Um, so, uh. <laughs> uh, the, so, possibly we'll be back in seven days. But look, Poppy, to your earlier question, I mean, I do think this has me personally. And I think some news organizations are reevaluating why yeah. do we rely so much totally. on this service? Thank Come you. sit down with us. Thank you, Donnie. And do yeah. an interview. We can talk about these issues. Oh, you're talking Elon to Elon. Elon. I'm talking Donnie, to Elon. you'll always have a platform right here. Thank you Thanks very much. Friend. Yeah, he, uh, Donnie we, always joins us. We got to get to this because another great interview, just like the great reporting. You've been doing another great interview. The two top Democrats in Congress sitting down with our very own Jamie Gangel for an exclusive just as a new CNN poll finds 59% of Democrats don't think Biden should run to be the presidential nominee in 2024. You're stepping aside. Do you think President Biden should step aside for a younger generation? Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, the top two Democrats in Congress, have gone further than they've gone before in voicing their support for another run by President Biden. In an interview with our Jamie Gangel, they both resoundingly endorsed Biden for a presidential run in 2024, all while enjoying a meal at their favorite Chinese restaurant. Watch this. What are you going to have? Uh, I think I would get um, dumplings. Uh, sorry, I'm late. <laughs> Hot and sour soup, that's what I was going to have. Nice bowl of soup on a cold day. There you go. You actually first met at a meal like this in 1987? Correct. And it's like January. And George Miller, who was my roommate, my landlord, he said, there's a new person joining our group. Her name is Nancy Pelosi. She's the new Congress member from San Francisco. And she, before I met her, 
she will become the first woman speaker. That's what he said. God's yeah. honest truth. He was right. But what was interesting yeah, about she didn't it, know was right. <laughs> well, you really knew the first time you Well, I knew she would really be a force. <laughs> Whatever that might be. Yeah, would you like to put some appetizers? So I'll have an order of shrimp dumplings. Okay. And then I'll have some string beans. Talk to me about your, your relationship. The two of you finish each other's sentences. You're on the phone constantly. Four, four five, one, five, seven, three, zero, oh, and I'm not going to say the last oh, four please. digits. <laughs> you you know everybody's phone number. But hers, and I probably dial hers more than just about anyone other than people in my family. Well, here's the thing. I, I say this all the time. He has a what do you call that phone? Flip phone. A flip phone. If he had a regular smartphone, we could reduce the number of conversations because I could just text him. How would you describe your relationship? You're called the power couple, you're called an odd couple. Yeah, we're close and friends. It's almost friends. like brother and sister a little That's bit. Right. When you disagree, who wins? usually her no no when we disagree then we end the conversation yeah. and we know we're going to come we had a pretty tough one a week ago right what was it about, what was it? It about? I, don't, I don't even remember i don't remember what it was but it was, was. shall we say candid candid yes i want to talk about how the two of you navigated working with former president trump because he had a, um, we had a good time <laughs> he he famously nicknamed the two of you chuck and nancy right it was always chuck and nancy i think you both knew that speaker pelosi got under his skin right right yes was there a strategy when you went into a meeting was there a good cop bad cop he's just inaugurated this is an historic moment the president of the united states so i'm thinking how is he going to begin is he going to quote the Constitution, American history, poet, the Bible. You know I won the popular vote. That's how he started. And I said, Mr. President, that's just not true. We sort of set him up instinctively. We didn't plan this. Everyone thought we planned it out. It was about the government shutdown the first time. And Nancy said something to him about he didn't understand about women. So, what? Chuck was masterful. Well, he was masterful. She set him up so I could go in for the kill. No, but he was masterful. He's talking to him about the government shutdown and about the immigrants and the rest. And he says, "I'll take ownership of the yeah, I shutdown." I said, "So, Mr. President, you'll own? Will you own the shutdown?" Yes, I will. And that was, oh, thank you very much. There are a series of moments that you saw firsthand. There's the clap, there's tearing up the speech, and then there is the famous picture. It's the meeting in the cabinet room where you stood up and, uh, and confronted. Looking back at those moments, what was going through said, your mind? He said he doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's up against. I tell people, Nancy instinctively knew how to handle Trump because for her first, you know, 35, 40 years of life, she raised five children and she knew how to deal with children. And that's what helped her deal with Trump because he ultimately was a child.
one of the more entertaining and news-making I'm so interviews. Right now. I I'm want starving. Food. I want some dumplings. <laughs> some dumplings. Oh, Jamie's here. I, hey, Jamie, Jamie. I just thought we were reacting to your piece. I'm sorry. Oh, we get her in the flesh. That was so good. I feel like they've never done Thank that you. before, right? In in 35 years, remarkably, they have never done a joint sit-down interview mm. together. Huh. Uh, the shrimp dumplings were excellent. <laughs> I, I I will say there there were. I mean, look, the flip phone with with Chuck Schumer is uh, it, it's a classic. He has memorized the phone numbers, not just hers, but every one of uh, the Democratic senators in his caucus. And look, it will not surprise you that as you know, when you uh, tease the interview, you see they have both endorsed Biden for president in 2024. They want him to run. Uh, As far as Donald Trump, who's, as we know, the only Republican who is announced. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said later in the interview, do we really have to talk about him while we're eating? So it, it was just, you've never seen them sort of that relaxed before. Mm. And um, look, she's stepping down as speaker, but I think they're still gonna be talking four times a day. Interesting. I don't even know my own phone number. I don't know. Give me a break. <laughs> I don't. I have to, like, look it up on. Jamie, that was great. And Jamie, you know, you're Thank my favorite. You. Don't tell these guys. He tells us every day, and yeah. we don't blame him because you're our favorite, too. I guess okay. no, you're re- all my no reporter thought to bribe them with um, food. Chinese. Well, it's just, I mean, but the relationship and, like, the actual seriousness of that, like, how they have navigated it, especially when we see the split that's playing out in the Republican Party right now. Look at what's happening with Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. That's such a good point. And they're sniping at each other. It's just, it's not easy, and they have not always disagreed because there have been moments. Remember when Manchin said he and Schumer came to that agreement? Schumer had not told Pelosi. That was the whole part of the dynamic of that. So there have been those moments, but it they is... They haven't always agreed, you meant. They definitely yeah. have not always agreed, yeah. but to see them work together and how they've been successful with what they're going after by working together, while you see how yeah. you know it works on the other hand with the GOP, is really fascinating. Again, our thanks to Jamie Gengel for that. That's great. This is just into CNN. We are learning that New York College student Kenny Deland Jr., who went missing two weeks ago while studying abroad in France, that he is alive. Melissa Bell joins us live from Paris. Melissa, what's going on with that? What, what, is, what happened? Well, just extraordinary news this Friday morning. Our producer here at CNN, Saskia Van Dorn, happened to be on the phone uh, to Kenny Deland Jr.'s father, who was explaining that it was simply not possible. He wasn't sleeping, wasn't well, uh, really very shaken. On this, the 17th day uh, that they've been without news, when he got a text message, he's since confirmed to us that he's spoken to him. We don't know more for the time being, Don, about what happened, where he went, or how he left his family without news for that long. But we know now that he's been found just a day before he was due to fly back to the U.S. for the holidays, Don. All right, I guess we'll get more details as they come in. Thank you very much, Wessabelle. We appreciate that. A misdiagnosis sending the daughter of CNN's Jake Tapper to the hospital fighting for her life. Our very own Dr. Sanjay Gupta sat down with Jake to talk about it, and they both will join us live next. I mean, you, you really thought that, that Alice might die.
A new government report found that more than 7 million incorrect diagnoses are made in emergency rooms every single year in the United States. This happened to a family that is very dear, dear to us here at CNN, the daughter of our own Jake Tapper. He and Dr. Sanjay Gupta are standing by to talk about this with us. But first, we want to share Alice's incredible story with you. I was so tired. I would sleep through the whole day and my stomach was hurt so bad. I've never been in that amount of extreme pain before. That was the scariest thing I've ever seen because it was just, the life was just leaving her. And I just thought, this is, what is wrong? Why is her skin so green? And why are her hands and feet freezing? I mean, you, you really thought that, that Alice might die? I absolutely don't like to think that she could have died, but. A hundred percent, I was starting to think. I'm gonna Jennifer and my colleague Jake Tapper are 15-year-old Alice's parents. They all wanted to share their story as a cautionary tale and to shed light on how something so common, so treatable, could go so terribly wrong. I started throwing up on a Saturday morning and I got really sick. I was just not getting better, so my parents took me to go into the hospital. Most likely diagnosis at the time, stomach pains, possible food poisoning, gastroenteritis. Jennifer was particularly worried about appendicitis. I said, this is on Monday, and I said, why don't you just give her a sonogram? Um, you know, she has so much going on down there. She's in so much pain. Let's just see what it is, because we don't know. And they looked at me, and, she, and the doctor said, that data's not needed. That data's not needed. We don't need that data. Data, evidence. And one more critical ingredient, judgment. It's what doctors use to try and make decisions. For example, pain in the right lower belly is considered one of the most common symptoms of appendicitis. And yet, less than half of all people with appendicitis have the classic pattern. Where were you experiencing the pain? I had pain all over my abdomen instead of just um, my right quadrant. The way that they ruled out appendicitis was by a jump test. I was asked to um, jump, and I was able to maybe get one inch off the ground, and just that ruled out appendicitis for all the doctors. And that's when they just declared it was a viral infection. But being aware of biases is very important. So Dr. Prashant Mahajan heads the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Department at the University of Michigan. He says misdiagnosis can occur in part because of diagnostic momentum. You anchor yourself on that particular diagnosis, and it is possible in some instances that it is taking you away from the condition that the patient has. It was in part that diagnostic momentum that led to the doctors missing the early signs of appendicitis in Alice. Every year, roughly 25,000 children develop appendicitis. And according to this study published in 2020 by Dr. Mahajan, roughly 5% of the time, that's a thousand times a year, the story mirrors the story of what happened to Alice Tapper next we went into the hospital and we just assumed the doctors knew what they were talking about. They kind of backed into a diagnosis of a viral infection. And Jen and I would say, are you sure it's not appendicitis because her pediatrician thinks it might be? Is there some reason we can't give her antibiotics? Is there some reason we can't get an x-ray or a scan? We see the child every day. So I knew her skin coloring was different. I knew her belly was distended, even though she's a smaller framed child. Those are the things we kept saying. 
In fact, more than three excruciating days passed in the hospital without much more than pain relievers before the Tapper family was finally able to get some answers. I'm a journalist, so I was able to get the number of the administrator, figure it out, and they, and they took the call and they took action. But most people wouldn't have been able to do that. We recognize we have this privilege. We got an x-ray and it showed that I had something going on in my appendix. So after we got a sonogram, they were like, we need to rush you into surgery after this. But by then, Alice had worsened dramatically. The reason she had suffered such widespread pain was because her appendix had already ruptured, leading to severe infection and sepsis. An appendectomy is one of the most common pediatric operations performed. Typically, it lasts around an hour and the recovery takes a few weeks. In Alice's case, however, the operation couldn't even be done because her abdominal cavity was now filled with infected fluid. I had to get two liposcopic drains at first, and then after they um, discharged me and sent me home, I went back to the hospital because I still wasn't feeling better, and they had to put another liposcopic drain in me. I ended up getting my appendix out 12 weeks later in March. What was your life like during those 12 weeks? I had lost so much weight from being hospitalized that I was just struggling to eat and able to function. I had trouble going to school. I would get so tired and make my mom pick me up early. Months of her life lost. So much of that entirely preventable. Mm. And joining us now is Jake Tapper and Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Jake, I just, I can't get over that line. The data's not needed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there is, uh, and the reason, look, we're very privileged. We were able to break through the hospital bureaucracy and change who was taking care of Alice and get her fixed. The average family would not have been able to do that, and the average family may have very well lost that child. And that's why we're coming forward, not to point fingers, but to say to the medical community, mm -hmm. please, at least 5%, if not up to 15% of the time, appendis, appendicitis is being misdiagnosed, especially among kids. And, as Sanjay pointed out, at least 50% of the time, the abdominal pain is not just focused uh, on the uh, right quadrant, as Alice puts it. So yeah. the medical community needs to rethink how they rule out appendicitis. That's why we're coming forward. Mm -hmm. Please do not just say, no, this is viral. Do not back into uh, diagnoses. I'm sorry, I'm a little emotional <laughs> watching that piece okay. again. Um, and we're, we're, the, rose, the reason we're, we're coming forward is because we don't want this to happen to anyone else, and we recognize most parents would not have been able to get the hospital administrator on the phone. That's my question to you. I'm sorry. That's oh. my question to you. How are you guys doing? We're good. Alice is stronger and healthier than any, anyone in the family, and, and she's taken up crew, and she's, she's seized her life in the best possible way. But look, I mean, almost losing a child is, is a horrible experience, second only to actually losing the child, and we almost lost her. I remember um, when we saw this tweet, um, Jake, last March, and you were at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, we, can, we can show it. Um, finally, the hospital that was able to save Alice. And I had no idea about any of this background, right? And, and, and sort of think what you went through. Uh, and Sanjay, Alice writes at the end of her piece, 
on CNN.com. I still can't believe this happened to me. I don't want it to happen to anyone else. What can families, as Jake says, that are not as privileged as them do to save their children? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, I went through all the medical records. There's hundreds of pages. And even aside from Jake finally making the call to the administrator, they did a lot of the things that they did a lot of the right things. I mean, they were very clear about what they thought was going on with Alice. And I think one of the things that jumped out at me is that, you know, parents are going to know their kids better than anyone. Kids, you know, they may describe their symptoms differently to the doctors. Parents know what's going on with their, with their children. And what Jake and Jennifer were doing, we're, we're making it clear to the doctors uh, that this was unusual because if a kid may be more stoic in the hospital, the, the, the Tapper parents in this case need to make sure that the doctors understand how, how serious this is. And they, and they did that. There's also this, this thing called diagnostic momentum, and it's something to be aware of. Basically, think of this as like the group think that happens in hospitals. Hmm. Someone puts down the diagnosis, other person affirms it, it becomes affirmed, 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 it becomes a snowball, that's the diagnosis. Interrupting diagnostic momentum, I think, is a really important thing. Understand that people are going down this hill uh, and you got to interrupt that. And I think uh, Jennifer said something to me as well during the interview, which is that, look, you can be a, a kind person and, and, and a nice person, but um, it's not the time to be polite in terms of actually uh, talking about what's going on in this case with their child. Uh, you got to make it very clear that you, you don't want to just outsource all the thinking to other people and say, okay, just take care of this. You need to be in there, get involved, which again, the tappers did. Um, and, and in this case, you know, as, as happens at least 5% of the time, a misdiagnosis still occurred. But interrupting that diagnostic momentum, I think, is really important. Um, everyone should yeah, read. If I could go back, I'm sorry for, I'm sorry yeah. for interrupting. If, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. If I could go back in time, what I would say is instead of being polite, instead of Jennifer and I saying, do you think you know we could get uh, an X-ray or a CAT scan or a sonogram? Do you do you think we could do that? And instead of being polite about it and deferential, I would demand it. Alice needs a, an X-ray. You guys don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's because you don't want to pay for the X-ray or what it is. We'll pay for it out of pocket. Our insurance will pay for it. Get her an X-ray. If that X-ray had happened Monday, all of all of the pain of Tuesday and Wednesday would have been avoided. So I think demanding something for your kid or for yourself is, is something that, that patients can do. Because you're their voice in this. You're their voice in this. It's, it's horrible that you went through this, but Jake, you're using it for good. And I really appreciate it. I know it's emotional for you. Jake is not usually this emotional. Um, uh, it's a bit stoic, <laughs> as we know. <laughs> like me, a bit of a curmudgeon sometimes. But Jake, I'm, I'm sorry you guys went through this, but I'm, I'm really happy that you're, you're bringing light to it. It's, it's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And just, to, and just to clarify from Poppy's tweet, the Children's Hospital Philadelphia is not where all the bad stuff happened. No, I said the it's good stuff was saved. where Alice had her appendix removed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. I just want to make sure no, there's yeah. no misunderstanding. Because CHOP removed her appendix months yeah. later, different hospital, greatest people in the world. We love CHOP. I was trying to give them some, some well-deserved props. Yeah, uh, with that. I just don't want to, I just don't want to misunderstand it. Yeah. Uh, thank you, guys. I hope everyone reads Alice's op-ed. It has other good recommendations like other pediatric appendix, Rick's calculators that people can look at that can really be helpful. And Jeff, definitely watch The Lead with Jake today at 4 o'clock Eastern. Sanjay, Jake, thanks. And our that. regards to Alice and Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks, guys. See you. See you. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, next, this morning's number. It is 62, and we're going to tell you why ahead.
Welcome back to CNN This Morning. So Elon Musk sold another $3.6 billion worth of Tesla shares this week. That is 22 million shares. The last time he got rid of that much was in early November, shortly after he bought Twitter. This week's sale has uh, only added to a steady decline in Tesla share value, which has been unraveling for over a year. Let's turn to CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten for this morning's number. Good morning. What is it? Good morning. Okay, this morning's number is... Tesla stock price changed since November 4th, 2021. It is down 62%. This morning's number is 62 because that's how much Tesla stock price has changed from $410 per share at the peak now to just $158 per share. Why has Tesla's stock price fallen so much? Well, there are a bunch of different reasons. First off, there are overall market problems. The market is down altogether. There's more competition in the electric car space. Production problems, the zero COVID policy in China, And of course, we can't ignore this. Musk buying Twitter. Tesla is down 30 percent since then. Now, let's look at Musk individually, right, because he is obviously the man who runs Tesla. And we can see here, take a look at the worth of the two richest men in the world right now. Bernard Arnault, Louis Vuitton, now at 172 billion. Elon Musk down to 161. Look at where they were 13 months ago. Bernard Arnault, Basically at the same level, 170 billion now at 172. Look at Elon Musk's worth, though. It was at 340 billion. It is now down to just 161 billion. Now, obviously, I'd like 161 billion, but we're talking about a nearly 200 billion dollar loss in his net worth because Tesla has been down considerably. Of course, you know we talk about electric cars. They're only 2% of the market at this point. So that's something that I think we have to keep in mind when talking about this. Most people still have a gas powered For now. For now. Thank you for the number, Harry. Thank you. 62. World-renowned chef Jose Andres debuting a new show on Discovery Plus, highlighting his Spanish roots with his family. He is here live in studio. The renowned chef and humanitarian Jose Andres is returning to his roots as he embarks on a new journey. He and his three daughters are dining their way through his native Spain, sampling the food that first inspired him and jump-started his passion for cooking. Hello, people. I am Jose Andres. Spain is the land where I was born and where my passion for cooking began. Oh, yeah. Spain lives deep in my soul, and its food has made me who I am, a chef who loves to feed the world. What you hear is the happiness of all the ingredients. It's true. I have more than 30 restaurants across the U.S. Hola. But I am also a humanitarian, feeding millions of people around the world. We did 600 hot meals. A good day. I moved to America three decades ago. And I raised my family here. And now I'm taking my daughters, Carlota. This is so good. Inez Mm. and Lucia. Beautiful. All around my beloved home country. I want them to see it all. So joining us now is the chef, restaurateur, humanitarian, and founder of World Central Kitchen, Jose Andres. This is, I want to talk, we want to talk about your Ukraine stuff because that's so special, but this is really cool to see you and your daughters going on this culinary tour. You know, what was it like? Uh, quite frankly, for a dad to do this with his daughters is amazing. This began during the pandemic. Uh, we were 
very much cooking at home. We began posting videos. Uh, they became kind of more comfortable just doing these naughty videos. And I told them, hey, what if we do a show? And they began thinking about it. They said, yes, and here we did it. I got to hang out with you guys and your daughters last night. They're, it's pretty amazing. You're, you have a great family. I don't know who they take after, but they're a great family. <laughs> the mother, who you don't see there, is the mother, uh, but she was behind making sure that everything uh, ran perfectly. You know, we went to many places that they were familiar with, yeah. Yeah. south of Spain, Cadiz, Asturias, where I am from. But we went to other places they've never been before, and probably those were the best moments because for them was discovering even more the country where their mother and their father came from. You know, everything is a family affair with you. And I, let's just be honest. When, when I saw you in Ukraine, you were feeding people there, but you were also shooting this series. You were going back and forth. At one point, your, one of your kids was your son. Someone came with you to Ukraine. It was my, your daughter. My daughter. Your daughter. Lucia. She yeah. came for a week. Yeah. And so you were doing this as well. Why is, this, why is it important for you to do all of this at once? This is crazy, Jose. <laughs> Actually, it was my daughter, Ines. If not, when I go back home, I'm going to be over. Oh, my. <laughs> uh, oh, I mean... Uh, you know, the show celebrates that hopefully the pandemic is behind. Mm -hmm. This is more than a show about Spain. It's a, a show about family. It's about coming together, friends, uh, going through difficult times together. And it's a show about telling the world, come on, let's uh, build longer tables. Let's start traveling. Let's start going to faraway places. This show is about all of that and more. Why do you think food is such a uniter? Because that's actually what you've done. In your restaurants, you united people. And through World Central Kitchen, you unite people in the most dire circumstances. Uh, listen, uh, not to get uh, too deep, but uh, food is so important to all of us that we welcome uh, people we don't even know to our table as a sign of, I'm going to care for you. You are welcome into my tribe. Remember, the first gift we receive uh, as a sign of love, is when we come into the world and our moms just bring us to the body or, and somebody is feeding us. Right. That moment, the, the connection of humans with food is in the DNA forever. Uh, Briat Savaran, the French philosopher, he said, tell me what you eat, I'll tell you who you are. Uh, this is very much ingraining who we are. We need to start having food more at the heart of the table, especially when we talk about food as politics, food as policy. You give away a lot of money. Well, you got $100 million from Jeff Bezos. What are you doing with it? How are you using it? Uh, we put some of that money into the beginning of Ukraine, but we've spent, you know, hundreds of millions in that operation. 100% of the donations are, are private. But the money of Jeff Bezos, I'm using it in things that I believe food is going to be the answer. We need to make sure that countries around the world recognize food as a national security issue. We need to start having a global food institute that we can start talking about real policy in America and around the world that make sure that food is not a problem, but where actually food is the solution. We're seeing it right now in Ukraine. We have a lot of countries in Africa cannot feed themselves. That's a conundrum. That's a problem. It's not only the war. It's why those countries cannot feed themselves. You see, food is not giving the importance it deserves. We need to start really thinking about food at a higher level. Food is national security issue. Until we don't do that, many, many more problems are going to be happening in the years to come. And you were on the ground how soon after the Russian invasion of Ukraine? World Central Kitchen was in the border in Poland day one. Yeah. Day Myself, one. I was in Miami, I think. I arrived to the border in Poland day 
three. Yeah, I interviewed you. And very, very quickly, we began going in. I yeah. went in. I've been there, I don't know, 80, 90 plus days. I'm going back in January. I just came back from Kherson. Uh, Kherson was liberated, and we went in there 24 hours later with water and with food. And we kept going back every day. That's what we've been doing. Uh, Ukraine has food. Ukraine is exporting food. You're going to say, why well, you feed them? Because they have a problem of logistics. So passionate. We got to go because we got to get to the commercial break. Thank you for what You're you do. So also, amazing. congratulations on your portrait at the National, at the National Portrait Gallery. It's really great. I don't get a vote, That's but if I did, I would vote Nobel Peace Prize for you. All right. Just yeah. to there you go. make that clear. The we love series. you. Thanks for coming on. Jose Andres, Family in Spain, debuts December 27th on Discovery+. Plus. We're back in a moment. Thank you, Chef. That was so great. All right, in this season of giving, we want you to, to show you how you can help our 2022 top 10 CNN heroes continue the really important work that they're doing, but also have your donations matched dollar for dollar. Here's Anderson. No matter the amount, you can make a big difference in helping our heroes continue their life-changing work. And right now, through January 3rd, your donations will be matched dollar for dollar, up to a total of $50,000 for each of this year's honorees. CNN is proud to offer you this simple way to support each cause and celebrate all of these everyday people who are changing the world. You can donate from your laptop, your tablet, or your phone. Just go to CNNHeroes.com. Your donation in any amount will help them help others. Thanks. And if you know someone great who deserves to be a CNN hero, tell us about them. Our nominations for 2023 are already open. You can go to CNNHeroes.com. Thanks for joining us this morning, and uh, CNN Newsroom starts right now. Have a great weekend, everyone. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.